that we have, uh, have been going through in the book of Nehemiah as we've been looking to God and this time uh, where he has used Nehemiah to build this wall around Jerusalem, but not just build a wall, but to actually rebuild this city and to rebuild uh, the people of God in Jerusalem at this time in history. Now, last week in chapter 5, we looked at the first 13 verses and the internal problems that the Jews were facing during the construction of this wall around Jerusalem. And we keyed in on the internal strife, specifically around the love for their brother and how it wasn't happening, and how that they were not ensuring the care and the needs of one another, especially many of whom were the poorest among them. We spent some time looking at the law of God last week and how God's law gives us the foundation, uh, gives us the objective standard that instructs us uh, for what is good and how it is we should treat one another, how it is we ought to treat one another. We've got to spend some time focusing on those specific elements of the Mosaic Covenant that were basically being ignored by the people and how uh, to answer the needs of the poor that were in Jerusalem at that time and the needs of those who were struggling to finance the work of the wall. And we found that their solution was calling on the people to fear the Lord and in doing so, live out the proper kind of love for their brother according to how God tells us is good, according to the standard by which God calls us to live. And this Sunday, this Sunday as we dig back into Nehemiah 5, we will keep that theme in mind now, church, and we will keep our focus on the fear of the Lord and how we are instructed by it. In the second half of Nehemiah chapter 5, it gives us insight into the fear of the Lord when he calls, or as he calls people to lead. And in doing so, we are going to see a picture of Christ as we see glimpses of this messianic figure that points us to the true Messiah, the true Savior of God's people, the true Redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ. That's what this is a story about. This is a story that's pointing us to Jesus, church. Don't lose sight of that. Hopefully, uh, my little introduction got everybody a minute to open up to their Bibles, to Nehemiah 5. Go ahead and follow along with me as I go ahead and read uh, chapter 14 to 19, or verse 14 and 19 together. Not chapters 14 and 19. We'd be here all day, wouldn't we? Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of, the, of God. I also preserved in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was pre prepared at my expense for each day was an ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. As we get going today, too, I just want to share kind of an interesting story with you all on the 27th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. History lesson is probably not what you're expecting to go to right now, right? 
but stick with me for a minute. Fascinating thing about the 27th Amendment, right? Um, this was the final amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, those amendments began in the year 1791 when the United States ratified the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, right? And kind of interesting, too, the U.S. Constitution is the oldest functioning charter of any nation on earth right now, too, which is an amazing fact, right? It's been around for a while. It's been around for a while, and it's still working. It's still functioning. Well, these first 10 amendments were added to the Constitution 230 years ago, right? There have been numerous amendments added since. This last amendment added in, was added in 1992, and the very fascinating thing about this final amendment to the Constitution is that though it was not put into law until 1992, it was originally proposed with the first 10 amendments in 1791. So it sat around for over 200 years, somewhat ignored, right? Somebody knew it was still there because people were still working on this thing. But it sat around for over 200 years before anyone finally took action to put it into law. And I think if we read it, we're going to see why it probably took that long to, to do it. Here's the text of that, of that amendment. It says, No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. What does that mean? In other words, Congress wants a raise. They don't get to vote it into effect today. If they want to pay themselves more for the wonderful job our United States Congress does, right? it doesn't take effect until people get to vote the next people into office. You wonder why that sat around for 200 years before it was finally put into law, right? I think it's pretty obvious. How much of us would like to vote a pay raise for ourselves every now and then too, right? That'd be nice. No matter uh, how good of a job we're doing or how bad of a job we're doing, we just sit there and take a vote. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay myself more today. That'd be great. There's definitely a temptation when you're in that type of role, isn't there? And you have that kind of authority to make sure that you are taking care of yourself. And we justify those times too, not looking at our performance or what's best or, or how that would look in terms of corruption to the people around us, but it is far too easy to say, you know, I work for this, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. I'm going to get it. It's mine. And we put that in the framework of the United States Congress. We can see all the shortfalls of our human nature, and we, we can easily point to that and say, yeah, see, that's why you need a law kind of like that, isn't it? The sad thing is we probably need something like that for us too. As we press on in the story of Nehemiah, and here's the connection for us, right, church? We come to these last uh, six verses of chapter 5, coming off the heels of Nehemiah, dealing with the people and some of the corrupt practices with money and the corrupt practices toward the poor among them and their failure to obey God's law for Israel in regards to borrowing and lending and, and helping their poor, the poor among them and, the, and debt, their debt practices, we see a situation here in verses 14 to 19 that fits right along with the reason something like the 27th Amendment exists in our Constitution. The temptation to take advantage of the situation for our own betterment at the expense of the people in whom we serve is always there because we're all human and we all have those same blind spots. We all have that same nature that will rise up. Even when we're in Christ, that same nature that will rise up and say, well, maybe that's not that bad this time, right? That's not where Nehemiah is in the story though, church. Nehemiah isn't driven by U.S. law, obviously, 
But Nehemiah also is not driven by Persian law and how he acts. He is driven by one thing in this story, church. He is driven by the fear of the Lord. He is driven by the law of God. Not any man's law. He is driven by what is right before Almighty God. And he does this to lead the people in Jerusalem in a manner that is fair and is just. And yes, also in demonstrating, uh, or yes, but he's not doing this to just uh, demonstrate that he has a concern in order to placate the people. That's all too easy too for politicians, right? It's where you get them standing in front of a microphone saying, I feel your pain. He's not trying to placate the people here. He's not, he's not giving a fake campaign slogan to make him feel like he's actually in the trenches with them right? These people, if that's the case, right, they might be very mad that Nehemiah, this, this guy who's their brother, he's got this cushy government job, and yet what is he doing? He's just taking advantage of it for himself. No, I think we see Nehemiah demonstrate that he has a real care for and well-being of his brothers, the Jews who work with him, and the ones uh, who are ready to fight with him, the ones who will soon be worshiping with him in Jerusalem when the wall is restored and the city is safe again for the Jews. Nehemiah has a real care and concern for his brothers here because it's the fear of the Lord that is at work in his life. I told you earlier, this is kind of part two to last week's sermon in some way. And we called that one, the fear of the Lord for the love of your brother. The people lack the fear of the Lord in Nehemiah, the first half of Nehemiah. And we saw that evident in how they were treating one another, how they were taking advantage of one another how they were oppressing one another. And this theme carries over from last week. The fear of the Lord, it drives the love for our brother. And we see the fear of the Lord is driving Nehemiah to truly have love and concern and a genuine desire for the good of his fellow Jews. And Nehemiah isn't out just to take what is rightfully his. And he isn't out just to build up treasure on this earth for himself and make some kind of great name for himself amongst the peoples. Or maybe even not make a name for himself among the peoples, but just take what they have for his own gain. No, but remember what Nehemiah was concerned about. In chapter 1, when we started this story, right? Chapter 1, it says, uh, the report that came to Nehemiah said, the, the remnant there in the province who had surveyed the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And in chapter 2, when Nehemiah arrives on the scene, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, these enemies of Yahweh and his people, are greatly displeased that Nehemiah is on the scene because, as verse 10 says, someone has shown up, someone has come, someone is on the scene now who has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Someone is here to care for the people who are ashamed and who are troubled who are literally living in the rubble of this wall of what is supposed to be their great city that sits at the heart of their worship. These people are in trouble. Nehemiah and his efforts to lead the Jews in this work of rebuilding the wall is doing this for the glory of God and for the welfare and the restoration of God's people. And the reason why this passage is important for us to think through and to see transformation brought to our lives, and that's that question why that's on the screen, right? And so that our lives and our leadership would be grounded in the fear of the Lord. It's a beautiful lesson in the story of Nehemiah here in chapter 5. That our lives and our leadership 
be grounded in the fear of the Lord so that we would truly, honestly care for our brother, that we would care for our neighbor, that we would live like Jesus calls us to live in being conformed to his image and how we live for him in this world. If we live and we lead grounded in the fear of the Lord, grounded in that love of Christ for what he's done for us, we will be people who live conformed to Christ, seeking to use our influence as leaders or otherwise for the welfare of those around us and those who serve with us. And to see people raised up, set free, like Jesus said when he arrived on the scene, the day has come when captives have been set free, the prisoners have been released. This is the work of Christ in us, to be that light to the world, to know to know that God has come to reconcile us. And we live and we lead like that, and we see Nehemiah doing that very thing here. This has practical implications for us at home, does it not, church? Right? At home, men, if you're in the home and you have a wife and you have children, you have grandchildren, you have a responsibility to lead them to Jesus. Right? You have a place where you have to to lead people to Christ. This has implications for us when we think through our politics too, doesn't it, church? Who is it that we want in these positions that we're electing to represent us in these offices, in the state, and in the nation? Are we seeking people who have that fear of the Lord like Nehemiah had? Or are we seeing people over and over and over again demonstrating that they're just seeking these offices to take advantage of what they can get out of it for themselves? I see a whole lot more of that in our government nowadays than I see the the former. And that's practical implications for us, church, because that's reflective of us. We're the ones putting those people into those places through our system, church. So what kind of leaders, what kind of representatives are we looking for to take those roles and responsibilities? There's practical implications there for us, church with our politics. And maybe you say, you know what, I, you know, I, I don't have kids at home, so I don't have to lead. You know, like, I don't care about politics, so I don't really vote. You know, I don't have a leadership role at work, so I don't have anybody to lead. There's a lot of people we could look at and say, you know, I just, I, it's not true for me. There's nothing here for me. But church, if you're there and you say that, and we go through all the boxes, and we sat down and talked about all the places where you have influence and leadership, and you still can prove to me that you actually don't have any of those scenarios I I kind of walked through quickly, I want to challenge you right now. You are leading people to Christ every day you are breathing on this earth. You are leading, church. Are we going to lead people to Christ? Or are we going to, by our bad example, by our desire for worldly gain, tell the world Jesus is no different from anyone else? keep living like you're living? Are we going to lead people actively away from the one that our hearts say we don't really want in the first place? Who are we leading people to? Are we leading people to the desires of their heart or are we leading them to the one who will set them free for eternity, for eternal life and that glory we will share with him? You do lead, church. Somewhere in your life, you are leading someone or something and you are leading them to Jesus, hopefully. As we get into our text today, I want to just kind of break it down into three pieces for us. We're going to deal with it in three parts. First, 
The first part we're going to look at is Nehemiah and his fear of the Lord. And we're going to look at that theme that rolls over from last week. And we're going to see that the fear of the Lord that Nehemiah has and what it brings out here as a leader. And second, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah's desire to ease the heavy burdens of his people. And there are some beautiful biblical connections for us to, to be aware of in that desire Nehemiah says he has to ease the burdens of the people. And the last thing, as we break down this text, is going to be found in verse 19, where we look at Nehemiah, and we see where his true treasure is found, church. Y'all ready to go through the text with me then? Let's go. Look back at uh, verse 14. I'm going to read the first couple of verses for us again. Verse 14 says this, Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes their king, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. First part of chapter 5 last week had Nehemiah addressing the complaints and, uh, of the people who were being taken advantage of. And then addressing those complaints uh, with the people who were the ones that were doing the wrong. And the text shifts here in verse 14, rather than looking at the uh, outward uh, people, right? At the people who are making the complaint, the people who have the complaint against. Nehemiah starts to share details from his own, uh, his own piece of the story here, church. And we see Nehemiah acknowledge in these first few verses the fact that he has been given this position of power from the king of Persia. And with this position, there are rights that he is entitled to. He is a governor. He has a role. He has an official role given to him by the king of Persia. And specifically, he mentions that he could be taking from the people this food allowance that under Persian law is rightfully his to take as a governor. But he doesn't take it. He doesn't take it. And not only that, he contrasts his actions in these few verses here with the previous governors of the area. The previous governors were so corrupt, they so disregarded the welfare of the people of which they were governing, that even their servants, Nehemiah says, even the servants of the governors lorded it over the people, that they had it better than them that they were taken care of, that their money was coming to support them. It's bad enough, right, if a governor acts like this. But how does it feel when all of his cronies now come in and start to take advantage of the situation too, church? Right? We see the corrupt uh, politician. We see the corrupt governor. We see the corrupt person who's taking advantage of a situation from their power. And now what do they do? They bring in all their friends to sit there and profit from that situation too. That makes it even worse, doesn't it? It's bad enough. Now you're just piling it on top of us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. But Nehemiah carries himself differently from these previous governors. And he makes it clear for us at the end of verse 15 exactly why that is. He says, I did not do so, not because I was better than them, not because I had a better philosophy of leadership than them, not because Nehemiah just intrinsically is a holy person. He did so because of the fear of God. The fear of God. This idea, this theme, is the driving force 
all through chapter 5 that is causing people to reject their sin towards one another and bringing them to repentance and reconciliation with the people. And now in today's passage we've just read, this back half of chapter 5, it is driving Nehemiah to lead these people like no man has ever led these people to this point. The fear of the Lord is driving Nehemiah to lead differently. It's causing Nehemiah to act differently from the governors who came before them. The fear of the Lord, it is literally driving the love for his people. It drives the love for his brothers, the Jews. The Lord demands the people love one another like they love themselves in his law. And we know because of what Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 13, many, many years after Nehemiah, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law because it does no wrong to a brother. The fear of the Lord in the life of the people and of Nehemiah, it causes them to have such kind of love for one another. And it causes them, by extension, to have concern and care for one another. And it drives their actions to treat one another with fairness, with compassion, with a sense of justice. I mentioned it last week, but it is a a valuable point for us to remember today, church, because it is a criticism we face from a mocking crowd in this world today. This is where we say the fear of the Lord drives us to love our brother, and the mocking atheist will sit there and say, that's not morality at all. You just do good to your neighbor because you don't want your sky daddy to punish you. That's the critique. That's the critique that you get. And I want to just say, oh, the irony of this position, church. Oh, the irony. Because without the instruction given to us from God, through his special revelation that tells us what is good and bad, without this objective moral standard by which we can measure our actions, without this fear of the Lord, it doesn't matter how we treat one another. If God has not revealed to us what is good, what is evil, the fact that good is and evil is, if we do not have this revelation from him, we're all just making it up as we go, church. And it doesn't matter how I treat you. Because I need to get mine, and you need to get yours. And that is not what God calls us to. That is not what the law of God calls us to. Without God giving us a standard and asserting himself, and telling us that he is the one who will judge, without those things, the love of your neighbor are just fancy ideas that have no real true meaning or purpose in this world. It's the fear of the Lord that drives us, our love for our brother. And it is an amazing reality. Yes, church, there is a God. And this God has spoken, and he has spoken in such a way that he intends for us to hear his voice and to respond to his revelation, church. And we look at this great and mighty and powerful God with awe and wonder and with fear, and we acknowledge the beauty and majesty of this God, an image and knowledge that, or, and we, we acknowledge the beauty and the majesty of this all-powerful, almighty God. And from this image we get of him and from this knowledge that comes to us in our lives, it causes us to say, I see. I see good. I see bad. I see light. I see darkness. God, I'm going to follow you. God, I'm going to fear you. God, I am going to obey you because you have spoken. 
You have told us what's good. Lord, I don't want to go against that, Lord. Not because I'm just afraid of being punished by my sky daddy, the way the atheist would like to critique you, but because it is intrinsically good, because it is who God is, and it is what he has revealed himself to be to us, and it is what, his, it is what he has revealed to us for how to live in such a way that we love one another, we care for one another, and it teaches us that love in itself is important in the first place. We saw what that looked like as the people repented in the beginning of chapter 5, church. And we see what that looks like now in the life of a man who has been called to lead this people for this time. And how when, we fe- when, and how when the fear of the Lord is not present, the man in charge gets his. And who cares about anyone else? That's what happens when the fear of the Lord is not present. The man in charge gets his and no one cares about anyone else. But when the fear of the Lord is active in the life of the governor, as in the case of Nehemiah, when the fear of the Lord is active in the life of the people, the people receive the benefit of care and compassion, of love and concern, and a desire to see the well-being met. And this all comes from that one line Nehemiah gives us. Because I feared God. Because it's his standard, it's his life, or it's his standard we live up to. It is what is good because he has told us it's good, church. Nehemiah knows he can't take advantage of these people because the only reason he is in this position as governor is because the good hand of God has been with him. And if he does take advantage of his position for his own personal gain now, he would be forsaking the God who called him and who equipped him and the God who gave the promise to the people that Nehemiah is a part of. Taking this now and forsaking the people and saying, you know what, I'm going to get mine because I can, would be forsaking the very God who put him in this position in the first place. We've seen other stories in the Bible, church. That's not a place you want to be, is it? Nehemiah, we said it, had every right under Persian law to take what he desired from the people. But he didn't because while he had the authority under Persian law, he remembered the law of God that God has given his people. And Nehemiah fears the Lord instead of hoping in the strength of men. We see the benefits of this in the lives of the people, church. We see the benefit when he doesn't take his food allowance. We see the benefit of the concern for the burden of the people that Nehemiah has. And we see that coming because while he could have taken advantage of the people for his own gain, his focus was on the well-being of the people of Israel. His heart was on the shame and the reproach and the burden of the people and to see it lifted from his brothers. Nehemiah verse 15 says, The previous governors laid heavy burdens on the people. And if you skipped ahead to the end of verse 18, Nehemiah says he did not demand the food allowance because the service was too heavy a price on the people. I mentioned earlier as we started today that this story started when the report about the Jews, the overall story of Nehemiah that is, started when the report about the Jews in Jerusalem was given to Nehemiah that the people, were, he was told, are in great trouble and in shame. The well-being of the people was being disregarded by all. 
And these are the people who Nehemiah counts himself as one. These are his brothers. These are the people who share in the promise that God has given to the Jews. The people of promise who God is using in history to do what? To bless the nations. By pointing the nations to the one true and living God and by bringing about the promised seed, the promised king in the line of David who will usher in this new covenant and who will call out to all tongues, nations, and tribes to come and to worship Yahweh. This is the people, this is the promise that the Jews have inherited. This is Nehemiah's concern. These people are, are, are in terrible shape. These people who are supposed to be a blessing to the nation and supposed to live enjoying this blessing of being God's people, these people are a wreck. They are scattered and they are scarred and they are in shame and they are in reproach. And they, as they try to pick up the literal pieces of what remains of this promise, they try to pick up the literal pieces of the wall around this city that is supposed to be central to their government and to their worship. These people are lost and in need of hope. They are in need of redemption and restoration. They are in need of being turned back to their God and being reconciled with Him. The wall in Nehemiah is an important piece of the story, church. It is. But the thing that is being rebuilt is more than just the physical structure. I think I said it, we said it every week we started this, right? Because we really want to get that point across. It's not just the wall. It's not just the wall that's being rebuilt. It is the very people of God who at this time in the story of Nehemiah have been burdened and heavy laden with a yoke on them that is too much for them to carry. And God is using Nehemiah to govern and he is using him to lead them and to organize them and to see them restored to that place of promise, to see them freed from that heavy burden. There was no one to care for the well-being of the people before Nehemiah came on the scene. Before God sent Nehemiah, the cares of the people were being lost and forgotten. I think here we see that pivot that I, I, I started to mention last week, church, in the overall story from the completion of the wall to the turning of the hearts of the people back to God himself. This is where the true the true meaning of the story of Nehemiah is found. And I think as much as in any part of the book of Nehemiah, we see in chapter 5, Nehemiah showing us in this story a type of Christ. What do I mean by a type of Christ? Well, this is common throughout the, the Old Testament. It's a literary feature to look out for when you read your Old Testament church because when you are aware that there are characters in the Old Testament that demonstrate features and characteristics and, and, and qualities of Jesus Christ himself, never perfectly, right? Because none of them are the Messiah, but we see these little glimpses in their lives and in their stories, and we see these things, and it makes us say, huh, that sounds kind of like Jesus. Almost as if the whole story is pointing to him. It is pointing to him, church. In these characters, we see as a type of Christ who, while we see their shortcomings and their sin and their failures, it, that gives us something to contrast Christ's perfection with, right? There are lots of quote-unquote heroes in the Old Testament, is there not? How many of them are still heroes at the end of their story, church? Very few. 
And the ones that are fell way, way, way down along the way too. And so we see what the heroes what, that are pointing us to the true hero of the story look like, and we can contrast that because when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't have that, church. He lives it perfectly every step of the way. Whether he's happy, joyful, whether he's angry and dealing with the sins of the people, Jesus does it perfectly. We see those godly characteristics in the Old Testament that point us toward the true or the coming true Savior and King. If we look at Nehemiah here, we can see him pointing us to Christ in chapter 5. Right? Because while Nehemiah wants to build a wall to protect or he wants to build a wall to protect the city filled... I'm reading that too fast. Sorry, church. Nehemiah wants to build a wall, but he wants to do it to protect the city that is filled with the redeemed people of God. That's why. That's why the wall exists. It's not just a fancy wall. He's not going to build a big, beautiful wall just to look at this beautiful wall, right? No, he's building it for a purpose, to protect this people that God has purchased and redeemed for himself. Nehemiah is a man who has authority, and he can count it as gain for himself. But instead, what does he do with this gain that he could have for himself? He gives it up in order to see the burdens of his people lifted. I think we see Nehemiah prefiguring Christ in his desires and his actions here, right? Because you know what this sounds like to me? This sounds a whole lot like Philippians 2, doesn't it, church? Philippians 2, starting in verse 4, Paul writes this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ, who has existed for all eternity with the Father, with the Spirit, um, one God, three persons, co-equal, together, he didn't use his rightful authority when the time came to come to earth to do what the Father had called him to do, to bring people to salvation. He did not use his rightful authority to shield and protect himself. What do we see in Philippians 2, 7 say about Jesus? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He has the power. He has the authority. And yet he still does this. He chose to give of himself instead of just saying, nah, I'm good. Jesus cares, and he has a concern for the burdens of the people. And we see Nehemiah in the story say, I have the authority, I have the power, I could do this, but I need to take care of the people. And he's pointing us to Jesus, who has all power, who has all authority, and he sits there and he says, I need to take care of my people, because it's who I am, and I love them. Nehemiah's concerned, just like Jesus was, of the heavy burdens the people carry. We saw that phrase repeated a couple times about these heavy burdens, about a burden that was too much for them to carry. And what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 11, verse 28? What does he tell us about these heavy burdens? He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Nehemiah is in in Jerusalem to build a wall, yes. So the people have their holy city. So the people have their center of government. So they have their location of worship restored. But Nehemiah is there to ease the burdens of the people. Not just in labor. This is a hard task. They're working day and night. Sword in one hand, trowel in the other. But he's easing the burdens. Pointing people back to Yahweh. Pointing people back to their God, pointing people back to the reason why they even care about building this wall in the first place. Nehemiah is turning the hearts of the people back to God, and his concern is for their heavy burdens. And now when we read this, when we see this in our Old Testament church, we remember Christ has come for us. Our attention can be turned ahead in the story of redemption. Nehemiah was not perfect. Nehemiah sinned. Nehemiah fell short. Nehemiah had great godly examples for us, but he can never save us from our sin. He can never accomplish the work that was necessary to reconcile us truly with God. And we can contrast Nehemiah to the person and the work of Christ. And in him, and in him we have true rest. We have true ease of our burdens of this world. We have a freedom from shame and reproach. We can come to him freely because of what Christ has done for us. He cares for your heavy burdens, church. He cares for those heavy burdens. We see it in Nehemiah and how he's caring for the people and leading the people, and we see it pointing us to Christ, who has died for you, church. He's given his life to reconcile you to the Father and give you eternal life. Nehemiah, we said it, he's a type of Christ in the Bible. He points us, his story points us to Jesus, and we see those characteristics, uh, we see those uh, uh, elements that we should be looking for in the Messiah to come. Last thing for us to consider in this text today, church, this is part three of what we said we're going to start at. This final observation is how the fear of the Lord shows up in Nehemiah's life And what I mean by that, we can see, if you look back at verse 19 with me, look at that with me. I'm going to read it really quick. Nehemiah writes in that last verse, 19, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. We made the point a couple of times now already, right? Nehemiah, in his role, was authorized to take from the people this tax, this food allowance, right? Even though it was a heavy burden on the people, he had every right in his position to demand it. It was his authority. He could have done it. And the people could have said nothing about it. Well, I'm sure they would have said something about it. But they couldn't have stopped it because the king of Persia said, you're the governor. This is yours. Nehemiah would have looked like a massive hypocrite to the people had he done this and he taken the Persian authority up on their offer. But Nehemiah didn't do this. And at the end of this story, at the end of recounting uh, this easing of the heavy burden on the people, he looks to God and says, remember me. Remember me for my good, O God, for all that I've done for this people. 
Nehemiah wasn't taking the wealth of the people to enrich himself in this life. The fear of the Lord now uh, that Nehemiah talks about, he now demonstrates as well too, doesn't he, church? Because as we see him now pray, and he says, remember me, Lord. Remember me for my good, Lord. He's saying, I didn't take advantage of these people when I had the chance. Lord, you called me to care for these people. And I came and I tried to do that to the best of my ability here, Lord. And in this, this role of him leading the people, he showed that he actually cared about his well-being. All this talk about the fear of the Lord in the life of Nehemiah, in these few verses, we see that he wasn't just talk, was he, church? He was walking the walk along with that too. Because while he had the opportunity to take advantage of that, he did not. And he did not, because of that fear of the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is active and actually producing fruit in his life to where when he could have said, I got mine, I'm going to take what I can while I can get it, and I'm going to walk over these people to, to, see, uh, to see that happen. No, the fear of the Lord produced something much, much different in the life of Nehemiah. It produced a heart that acknowledged where his true treasure is actually found. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Nehemiah's fear of the Lord is driving his love for his brother. And Nehemiah knows that whatever he could extract from the people, it is only going to be worldly. It is only going to be temporary. But the promise of the Lord and the treasure that Nehemiah gains from his faithful pursuit of Yahweh is greater than any worldly gain that Nehemiah could, could take from the people. So Nehemiah doesn't look back now saying like, man, man, I could have had, oh, I could have filled my bank account up just a little bit more. Man, retirement after this whole mess would have been so much nicer if I just had, you know, a few thousand more shekels in the bank. Right? My, 401, my 401k needs a few more shekels in it right now. If only I'd have just taken that one opportunity to take that allowance. I could have taken it just that one time, that one day. I could have taken it. Yeah, the people would have been pretty upset. And, you know, but, oh, gosh, it'd be nice to have a, a little bit more right now, wouldn't it? Nehemiah's not looking back, saddened by what he lost by not taking advantage of his brothers but not taking advantage of people who were so poor, some of them were just struggling to find food for that day. Some of them so poor, they were selling their children off as bondservants and slaves to pay for their debt. Nehemiah is not looking back on that, regretting not taking advantage of that situation, just a wee bit more. Thinking about what he may have missed out in this world. Nehemiah is looking forward. Nehemiah is looking forward toward the good that God has for him into eternity, church. He's not sad because he didn't get his, his few extra shekels that just would have made today a little bit more comfortable. You know, there's a bit of a famine 
a little bit of inflation. Man, I could just use a few extra bucks right here. He is looking forward to the good God has for him into eternity. Not looking back at what he didn't take. Looking forward at the Lord himself. He's asking him, Lord, remember me for my good. God, don't forget me. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me in this, in this place. Lord, I love you and I want to serve you and I want to know you. I want to, to be with you, God. Remember me for my good, Lord, because I know your good is better than any good I could have taken for myself in this world if I had the chance. He's looking forward into eternity and he's looking to God and he's saying, Lord, I know you're better. You're better than anything this world would try to tempt me with. You are better. And Nehemiah is an amazing example of faithfulness here. Nehemiah is not perfect. He, he sins. He falls short. We'll see that. We're going to see that. But, you know, I remember I was telling the story, the, you know, when there used to be Christian bookstores, which I guess there may be some here and there, there was something I saw one day that had a Bible All-Stars trading card set for kids. You know how like kids trade baseball cards? This was Bible All-Stars. I get it. It's fun. You know, you want to give your kids something more meaningful than just baseball cards to trade and talk about. But I looked at Doran when I saw that, and I said, that's the shortest set I've ever seen. Because there's only one All-Star in the Bible, church. There's only one. And that's Jesus, who the story is all about. So that's, that's a really bad trading card set, isn't it? Because if you want to trade cards, you want to collect them. You got one card, so... All those other people, they're not all-stars. They're warnings, they're lessons. They're people pointing us to the one who doesn't fail. They're pointing us to Christ, but they're not all-stars, church. And Nehemiah here, amazingly enough, gives us an incredibly godly example of a man who doesn't take advantage of his position. To see that, yes, it is possible to reject the, the promise and the temptation and the allure of worldly gain for the moment, for the greater eternal good of God and his people. That's a lesson for us to, to cling to and grasp tightly to, church, because that temptation comes to us every single day, does it not? Every single day. The fear of the Lord, it drives our love for our brother, and it ultimately drives us to the Lord as well too, right? It drives us to the Lord. This has been the theme. This has been uh, of this chapter 5 that we've looked at. This has been the, the heart idea that has driven all of the action between the characters in this part of the story, right? The people who were wronged, Nehemiah hears their cry, and he goes to the people who are doing the wrongdoing, and they reconcile, and they repent, and they restore what's been taken. And now Nehemiah acknowledges that there are people who have been wronged and laid a heavy burden on, and it's that fear of the Lord that, again, drives him back to do what is right in the eyes of God. And not just what's right in the eyes of God, because what's right in the eyes of God is showing that love for his brother, who we should be caring for, who the law of God directs us to show care and concern for. The fear of the Lord drives the love for our brother. I think that sits at the heart of chapter 5. And as we get ready to kind of wrap up today, there's just a few points of application I want us to, to think about as we, uh, as we kind of close out today. Did it go? Let's see. You guys click the slide for me. I don't know. The remote's not working. It's almost there. 
Hey, there we go. Three points of application, I think. I just want us to ponder today as we get ready to, to finish this uh, chapter five out. The first thing I just want us to think about, church, is let's look for and let's pray for leaders who fear the Lord. That seems pretty, anybody who has a, a basic sort of background in the Christian faith, that should sound pretty common sense, right? Because uh, we're told in the New Testament, in Romans uh, chapter 13, right, to do what? Pray for those or pray for leaders, right? The government has been instituted uh, by God for our good. So let's be praying for those people who are in positions of authority. But I just want to challenge us today too, church. Well, we pray for those people who are there because if the Lord turns the heart of these people who have been elected to represent us in offices, things could change overnight in our country, could they not? How much could change if we stopped looking, uh, uh, people who are elected to, to represent us, stop looking to their own gain and to their own establishment of their own political power, and they actually uh, operate under a fear of the Lord? That would change a lot of stuff, wouldn't it, really quick? So we want to pray for that. We want to pray for that. But let's pray and let's look for leaders who exemplify this characteristic too, church. And if we don't, and if we just keep settling for less constantly, like we have to do over and over and over again, I think that should impact our prayer life instead of our complaint life about voting for the lesser of two evils. Let's seek for those who want to lead out of a fear for the Lord. And let's pray for those who are there who are not, church. That's important. That's important. Don't just, don't just join the Twitter crowd, the online outrage mob. It's so easy to do. The government frustrates me. There's something dumb coming out every single day. I get it. I totally get it. But it's so easy in my flesh to just sit there and condemn them when what they need is they need us praying for them. And if they fail, if they don't demonstrate the fear of the Lord, praise God, we live in a place where we get to participate in removing them and replacing them, right? Replacing the king of Persia wasn't that easy to do. You had to have an army, and you better be have God on your side, right? Here in America, we don't like the way things are going. Guess what? We get a chance every couple of years. So pray for the people who are there, and pray for people who are going to come into those places in the future. The second piece of application for us, I think I just want us to ponder, is fear the Lord to lead and live like Jesus. I know I said it, not all of us are in jobs where we have people working under us. Not all of us may have kids at the home that are looking for us, right? But every single one of us in every place is leading people to Christ in how we live and how we speak and how we act. Don't miss that, church. Don't miss that, church. Live to lead people to Jesus. And if you are in a spot church, where you do have people working under you, you do have children in the home that are looking to you to, to lead them. Do we fear the Lord and how we treat them? Do we care for them with that kind of concern that God says is right and is good? Do people know we care? There's another good question too, right? Do people know that we care in that way? Have we made that obvious and plain to them? Fear the Lord, church, to lead and live like Jesus. Nehemiah had the opportunity to take advantage of the situation, to take advantage and, and gain for himself, and he refused that. He rejected it. We have that opportunity every single day to show the world who our God is and how much we love and fear him. 
We just need to look for those opportunities to live for Jesus and to lead like him when we're in those places to do such things. The last thing is kind of related to this too. Where are we storing up our treasure, church? Where are we storing up our treasure? I think this is fascinating too. I love economics. I know that sounds kind of strange, but I enjoy economics, you know, just as a theory and reading about economic things and stuff. And there's a lot of people that don't like our economic system in our country that we live in, right? I think there's a lot of unfair blame that gets placed on, on some things when really the problem is our own hearts and how we're treating one another. But I think there's something we have to acknowledge. Without the fear of the Lord, our economic system doesn't work. Without an objective moral standard that sits there and says that companies are, are building things to better people's lives and make products, and they're going to do that in such a way that they're not actually taking advantage of their workers, right? That they're paying their workers uh, fair wages and they're making sure that they have time to care for themselves, right? This is an important element of our economic system that has to be. And the further we go away from the fear of the Lord as a culture, the further we move away from this objective moral standard that, that is something that we can ground our lives in, the further we go away from looking towards our eternal good and not just whatever we can get in our worldly gain, the more we're going to see our economic system start to crack. And the more we're going to see people embrace other uh, philosophical and economic worldviews like Marxism. This is the reason why Marxism and socialism are on the rise and are popular. It's not because they're good ideas. They're not good ideas. They're immoral. Marxism is anti-Christian church. Marx hated Christians. Marx was at war in London at the same time with Charles Spurgeon because Marx was preaching salvation through violent revolution. Well, a guy like Spurgeon, who was the prince of preachers in England at that time, was preaching salvation through Christ. Right? These are, these are opposite worldviews that we have to deal with. But without the fear of the Lord, without the fear of the Lord, the economic system we all enjoy goes away. And people rightfully hate it. Because men who are not governed by the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We take advantage of one another. That tax that we can rightfully take, those extra hours we can demand or fire people. We have no outside standard. We have no objective moral standard telling us people should be treated in this way. This is important. This is, this is cultural economic ramifications. The fear of the Lord living and active in our life has multiple, multiple layers to it, church. Where are we storing our treasure? Are we looking to get what's ours in this life? Or church, will we right now look like Nehemiah to the future? Look to that eternity with Christ and say, you know what? Loving my brother and making sure they're cared for is worth more than trying to add a few more bucks to my 401k or my bank account or trying to secure that, that nice retirement for myself. Right? I'm not going to walk over my brother on purpose to gain a few more bucks for myself in this life. No, I want to care, that care and concern and that love for him, that I am honest and fair and just in my dealings, and that I love my brother. I love you all, and I care for you. And when there's a need, we come together and we care for one another in, in meeting that need. So the burdens of this world do not weigh us down and draw us away from Christ. And that all together as one body, united in Christ, we can, like Nehemiah, look to Christ, and we can say, remember us, Lord, for our good. 
Lord, carry us forward into eternity, into that glory with you. Because that eternal reward is far greater. That time we get to stand in your presence, Jesus, and see your radiance and your eminence and your perfection, that time where our souls are truly home with Christ, that is better than any worldly thing we could be tempted by. That's the kind of vision we need to have, church. That's the kind of treasure we need to be looking for. I'm not calling everybody to take a vow of poverty right now and give up all all of your possessions. No, I'm calling you to think differently about our possessions. Let's look at how we're holding on to this thing, the things in this world differently. And let's make sure, church, we do not defame our God and our Savior by stepping on people to gain more in this life. Because what's to come? What's to come, church? It's glorious. Don't take advantage of people, church, acting like this world is our best life now. Christ is our best life. We're going to live like that. We're going to lead like that. And that fear of the Lord will drive us to love one another better and love the people around us better than it ever has before. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we just leave all these words at your feet. Father, we just pray that you truly would work in our lives to have a good, healthy fear of you. Lord, use that in such a way that it drives us to love one another uh, better than we have, to, to love our kids and our wives and our husbands, Lord, whatever that is, our families better than we ever have, to love our neighbors, Lord, in ways that are better and more radical, Lord, than people have ever seen. Father, let our, our words that come from our mouth match the actions that we take with our hands. And Father, let us just know that there is no treasure in this world like your son Jesus. Fix our eyes on him today. It's in his name we pray, Lord. Amen.